All right, uh, go ahead and get your Bibles out. We are in John 7 this morning. Uh, John chapter 7, as I said four months ago, we began this journey uh, going through the Gospel of John chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And um, we're in chapter 7. It's only taken us four months to get through uh, six and a half uh, chapters of the Gospel of John. So to kind of give you a little bit of context to set this up a bit, so John 1 through 5, the first five chapters of the gospel, uh, there is this crescendo, there is this growing movement of more and more people following Jesus. So it's, it's church growth, right? Everything is going really, really well up and to the right. More and more people are witnessing the miracles, the teachings, Jesus walking on water, feeding 5,000, uh, healing people born blind, people who can't walk, and, and there's this great buzz, this great stir. So for the first five chapters, things are going really, really well uh, for the Jesus movement. Then chapter six happens, and things fall off a cliff. Jesus starts talking about some weird stuff, some very difficult teachings, and, all, and Scripture tells us in chapter six, at that point in time, many of his disciples deserted him. So all of a sudden, things are going really, really great, and then boom, drops off a cliff, and people are like, what is going on? At this point in time, the disciples are confused, they're discouraged, uh, they're kind of freaking out, they're asking themselves, should I keep following Jesus too? Because they're not really sure. The wheels have completely fallen off, uh, the Jesus train, if you will. And they're trying to figure out what to do next. And at this point in time, Jesus has made the religious leaders really angry, in fact, he's making all these claims about himself to be the Son of God, to be the Messiah. And they're mad. And they're trying to figure out how to kill him, how to get rid of him, how to assassinate him, because he is causing problems. So that's John chapter 6, and tension is really, really high. So here we are, we're picking up in John chapter 7 today. And I broke John chapter 7 in half uh, because there's 53 verses. It's a very long uh, text. And so if you were not here last Sunday, I, I would encourage you uh, to go to the uh, Faith Lutheran website and, uh, or on YouTube uh, and watch the sermon from last weekend. John Petrillo uh, shared with us a little bit about what's going on in the first part of John chapter 7. It's an excellent sermon where all these people are reacting to Jesus, and they're trying to figure out, and, and it's an invitation for us to figure out our voice, in a culture, in a world that hates Jesus, that frankly hates those of us who follow him, how do we find our voice? How do we continue to speak truth in the midst of all that's going on as Jesus' followers? The culture is hostile towards Jesus. And so in the story today where we're going to pick up, again, things are really, really tense. Things are off the chart, hostile, people are angry, emotions are really, really high. It's now six months before Jesus is going to be arrested and hung on a cross to die. Those three years of ministry, of everything going really, really well, it's in the rear view mirror. Now tensions are high. Jesus and his disciples, they're kind of hiding out there. They're hanging out up in the northern part, in the Galilee region. And some people go ahead down to Jerusalem, because it's the festival or the Feast of the Tabernacles. Um, it's also known as Sukkot. Maybe you've heard that word before. And uh, people are excited uh, because Sukkot, or the Festival of Tabernacles, it's a party. 
Uh, who doesn't love a party, right? I mean, there's lots of food, uh, there's lots of noise. It's a celebration in Jerusalem. And everybody, frankly, needed a little bit of space, a little bit of time just to blow off some steam because things had been really, really stressful uh, recently. And so they're like, oh, finally, this festival of tabernacles is uh, right around the corner. Let's go to Jerusalem. I mean, who doesn't love a good party. And that's what's going on. By the way, what could go wrong at a party, right? I mean, thing, right? I mean it's, it's, it's good. It's just fun and, and enjoyment. And this party is focused around one of the major themes is water. So let's pray as we jump into, get ready to jump into John 7, uh, latter half. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, uh, for this opportunity to open your word, to reflect on your word, uh, and to apply, to live into your word. Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So there was this guy walking through the Sahara Desert, and he got separated from all his friends, and as he's walking along, he runs out of water, he keeps walking, he keeps walking. Finally, fortunately, he runs into this guy on a camel. And he says to the guy on the camel, I need some water. Do you have any water? And the guy on the camel looks at him and says, I'm sorry, I don't have any water. But I could sell you a necktie. The guy's like, a necktie? I don't need a necktie. I'm I'm, I'm thirsting here. I'm I'm, I'm parched. I need water. He says, I'll tell you what. uh, One for $4, two for $7. And the guy's like, oh. So he keeps walking on, and he's walking along. He sees an oasis up ahead. It's a resort. It's like a sandals resort or something like that, right? So he gets a little bit closer. He gets really close, and he he walks in, uh, and there's a restaurant. He goes into the restaurant, he's like, water. He says to the head waiter, I need water. And the head waiter looks at him and says, sir, I'm sorry. In order to come into this restaurant, you need a necktie. You knew that was coming, right? You know, this is really the story of Jesus over and over throughout the gospel. He's like this artesian well, the water of life. And people around him are so thirsty, and yet so many people reject him for all sorts of reasons. And it's kind of perplexing to us even today. Why do people reject this fountain of living water? What is going on? And so here we pick it up in John chapter 7. Again, it's the Festival of Tabernacles, Sukkot, sometimes known as the the Feast or the Festival of the Booths. And it's an eight-day festival. And every day at this festival, what you need to know is that people would gather together and they would have a party. It was a great party. And they would have a parade every single day. And they would walk around the streets of Jerusalem celebrating what God had done for them. The priest uh, would go into the temple with a golden pitcher um, and, and take that pitcher. He would walk down the hill from the city of David down to the pool of Siloam. He would scoop out some water and there's a parade following him. And he, they would walk around and they would carry this water through the streets. And there was shouting and singing and dancing. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful time. And then he would enter into the temple 
He would walk into the temple gates. He would go up to the altar. He would walk seven times around the altar because seven times around the altar represents the battle of Jericho, right? And it's the battle of Jericho. It's that Old Testament story where Joshua and the Israelites, they're coming through the wilderness. They finally landed in the promised land. And when they march around Jericho seven times, the walls come down. It's the way of saying, we've arrived. We have finally gotten here. So there's this great big party. And then the priest pours the water on the altar. There's silence. And then somebody blows the trumpet three times. It's called a shofar. Three times. And everybody's excited. And in that moment... Everybody yells out this great text from the Old Testament, Isaiah 12, with joy you will draw water from the well of salvation. With joy you will draw water from the well of salvation. It's a water party. It's a celebration of God's faithfulness, the ways in which God nurtures us and quenches our thirst and promises for us to experience. And so this is going on for eight days. And then again, there's this crescendo. Every day it gets a little bit better and a little more exciting. And this is the context for what is going on here in John 7. Now earlier, uh, Jesus and his disciples, remember, they were up north. Uh, Jesus, his family, his brothers and all, they're up north. And like, hey, we're going to, to Jerusalem to the party. And Jesus is like, yeah, you guys go ahead. Uh, I'm not going now. So in the midst of this party, Jesus slips into Jerusalem as the party is going on. He walks to the center of the party, which is the temple, of course, and he starts teaching. And he starts saying the uh, very offensive things that God has gotten him in trouble over and over and over. And, and, then the, and then the tension is building, and they're getting angrier and angrier with Jesus. And pretty soon... The crowd looks at Jesus and says, you are demon-possessed. And Jesus, rather than kind of going like, all right, I think I've hacked off enough people. I'm just going to quietly slip out of town. He says, I've got more to say. And so he continues on. John chapter 7, verse 25. At that point, some of the people in Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? We know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. And then he looks at me and says, you do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. So it's just, it's, they're already mad. They're angry. They've called him demon possessed and Jesus doesn't back down. He says, furthermore, I am the Messiah I'm sent from heaven. I'm sent from God. And by the way, all you people, even you religious people, you don't know God because you have rejected me. Jesus all of a sudden becomes the gatekeeper to knowing God. Continues on. At this, they tried to seize him, 
But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Remember, we're still about six months before the cross. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, he will perform more signs than this man. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Isn't it interesting that in this uh, teaching, in this engagement, people are having different reactions in the crowd. People are responding to Jesus in different ways. Same sermon they're all hearing, but they're responding in different ways. Some want to seize him. Some are like, I think he's the Messiah. Others are like, we don't know what to do, we're afraid. Somebody do something. So interesting that all these different reactions to the same sermon. And I got to tell you, I get it. I understand this because uh, every Sunday, most every Sunday, I stand up here and I deliver a sermon to all of you. Same sermon. You guys all get to hear the same message. And some of you, you come here with your Bibles, you're taking notes, you're writing in your margins, some of you have got notebooks, and your, 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 your body languages, you're so into the text, and you're, you're so into the words that, that are being shared, and you're just like, oh, this is so good. You're taking notes, and you're writing, and you're thinking, and then I can just see it on your faces and in your body, and you're just, oh, you're into God's Word, and you're just soaking it all up. Others, sometimes, you sit here. On a Sunday morning, like this, some of you had pickle juice for breakfast this morning. <laughs> when I shared the story about the neckties this morning, some of you were like, that's not funny. <laughs> that's what's on your face. Don't tell jokes in church. Church is supposed to be serious, right? I mean, you just got this scowl on your face, and you're just like, ah, and you're just like, Argh. man, lighten up. Some of you, every week, fails not. You're taking a nap. Some of you close your eyes while I'm up here preaching. And you're in your happy place. And after worship, you come out, you're like, oh! Same sermon, different reaction from the congregation. I get it. This is what's going on in the story. Jesus said, I am with you only for a short time. Then, you will, uh, then where I'm going, to the one who sent me, you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So what Jesus is saying is, I came from heaven. I was schooled in heaven. I learned to become a rabbi in heaven. And I'm going back to heaven. And you want to go to heaven, you religious people, but you can't come. Can't come. I mean, how offensive is this? Jesus says, I'm going to heaven and you can't come. I mean, we can kind of understand why they hung Jesus on a cross, right? He is making mad the very people in power, the religious people. And it's interesting here in John 7, because if we fast forward six, six months to John 14, there's Jesus with his disciples sharing the Passover meal. And as they're sharing in this Passover meal, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, guys, I'm going away. I'm leaving. I'm going to heaven. And when I get there, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And after I prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and get you. 
Same story, but Jesus in John 14 says, I'm going to bring you guys with me. Not on this day. On this day, he says, you're not coming with. You want to. And this is, of course, is highly offensive to the religious leaders. And they're thinking to themselves, well, who do you think you are, right? We are the religious people. We are the educated people. We know the Torah. Our job is to have eyes to be prepared to look at all the prophecies and know when the Messiah is coming. Who do you think you are that you're telling us that we are not good enough to go to heaven? Those religious leaders, they believed that they were good enough. Now, I think most Americans today continue to believe this idea that good people go to heaven, right? I mean, it's kind of a common understanding. Good people go to heaven, to which I would ask the question, how good is good enough to go to heaven? I mean, it seems like uh, Jesus should have told us what does it mean uh, to be good enough to go to heaven, and I mean, is it, is it just kind of like 50-50? Is it like 51% just kind of tips the scales and I make it into heaven? I mean, if I were to get a 51 uh, on a sociology exam, Doug Dowell, what would my grade be? Huh? An F? I would fail? So 51% is not good enough. No. 75%? 75, okay, so I can get a C, right? All right, so are C's good enough for heaven? Jesus doesn't tell us. Well, I mean, what, what is good enough? I mean, let's, let's be really honest here. How good are you today? And some of you, the semester is about over, right? If we can be really honest. I mean, is there enough time left in the semester for you to kind of catch up and get a C? I mean, remember freshman biology class, you're kind of doing what you're doing, right? And all of a sudden, you're like, whoa, one exam left. If I just need to score 174 on my final exam, right, then I'll pass the class, right? I mean, that's, remember that? And so you go to your professor. You're like, oh, I hurt. I need a safe space. That, that's what you would do today, right? And the professor would be like, you're okay. We'll just, you don't have to take the test. Back in the day, we had to take the test anyways, right? Our professor would look at us and go, sorry, you get an F, dude. Not today. Back in the day, uh, we used to also pay our tuition. <laughs> just saying. It's another sermon. Just wanted to throw that out there. But I mean, it's the world in which we live, right? We just want to coddle and take care of. But what, I mean, what is Jesus talking about? What is the grade? What is the passing grade? What does it mean to be good enough to make it into heaven? I mean, how, I mean t today you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm better than my college roommate, right? I'm better than what's on the news. I'm better than Vladimir Putin. I mean, really, that's your grading scale? Your freshman roommate? But we think this way, don't we? We compare ourselves to others and we think, well, I'm better than that person and that person and that person and that person. There's nowhere in Scripture that tells us that that's the grading scale. In fact, Scripture tells us nine times. What does it take to get into heaven? To be with God for all of eternity? Be holy 
as your heavenly Father is holy. Be perfect. That's the grading scale that the Bible tells us. Not C's, not B's, not even A's. Perfection. And this is why Jesus had to come. Because none of us are going to make it to heaven apart from Jesus. But this is what's going on in the story. They're arguing. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Where will he go? Uh, Where will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you cannot find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. It's the last day of the festival. Remember, it just it crescendos. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. There's this parade. There's this water. There's the priest carrying the water uh, from the Pool of Siloam, and they're walking all over the streets. The priest walks around the, 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 the temple, then walks around the altar seven times. A hush falls over the crowd. They're getting ready to blow the shofar. People are thinking in their minds, Isaiah 12, 3, with joy you will draw water from the well of salvation. They're getting ready to shout this great Isaiah text. And when it's completely silent in the temple, all of a sudden Jesus shouts, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoa. In that moment, all the heads... Tens of thousands of people look at Jesus like, we thought we were here to celebrate what God has done in the past. And here's this guy, this rabbi, standing in our midst saying, great, celebrate what God has done in the past, but look at me. If you want your thirst quenched, come to me. Jesus offers this invitation to everyone standing there on that day, and he certainly offers that invitation to us today. Let anyone who is thirsty, as we think about our own lives, we have to acknowledge that we're thirsty. I mean, we go through life, our days in, days out, so distracted, filled with all sorts of things that sort of quench our thirst, but don't really satisfy And the first step in receiving the invitation that Jesus gives to us, that we have to acknowledge, I'm thirsty, I'm empty, I'm dry, I'm worn out, I'm at the end of myself. And there are so many people, we live in a society and a culture where we are just so full of our own pride, and I'm going to do it myself. But in order to receive this invitation to Jesus, we have to acknowledge that we are thirsty. We need to get water from beyond ourselves. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me. This invitation to make a decision to follow Jesus, to set down our pride and walk toward Jesus. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. It's receiving that free gift that he has offered to us. 
I mean, in order uh, to, to get a drink, you have to put your hands down, get some water, and bring it to your face. You've got something to do in that relationship with that water to quench your thirst. You've got to put your hands down and bring it to your mouth. You've got to receive what Jesus has given you, this free gift that you cannot get on your own. We all got a failing grade. In order to be perfect, we need to receive it perfectly and bring it to our mouth. This is the invitation. And we have an obligation. We have a responsibility. We have a part to play in all this. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And we can never forget this part of the invitation. This is an invitation for everyone. Not just the people who are gathered on that day. Not just the religious people. Not just the church people. For all people. This is one of the great uh, scandals of Jesus coming to this world is that his message was not just for the Jews, not just for the wealthy people, not just for the powerful people. It was for everyone. And if you're sitting here this morning thinking to yourself, I don't, I don't feel good enough, I don't feel worthy enough to receive what God has given, what God has offered through Jesus. If you are part of the er, anyone or everyone, that's, that's for you. This is an invitation for you, regardless of your past, regardless of your sin, Regardless of that argument you had with your spouse in the car, your kids, the words that came out of your mouth this week, the ways in which you did not love other people as you're supposed to, the invitation is for you. It's for all people. Jesus does not uh, distinguish between anyone. He says, hey, it's, it's just for everybody. And then he goes on, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Whoever believes in me. As we go through the Gospel of John, if you've been kind of following along, you've been reading along in John, this word believe keeps coming up over and over and over. And we've talked about this word believe over and over and over. And of course, the Greek word is pistuo. And it means to believe. It means to trust in. It means to put our faith in. But I think we use this word believe in such casual ways today, in ways that really don't make sense, in ways that are just so out there that it's not really the understand, uh, the, this idea of what pistuo is really all about. And I would say there's a couple different kind of beliefs as we use this word believe, as I hear this word believe in culture and society today. And, and one is I would just call the, a false faith, a false faith where someone says, oh, I believe in God. And then you start to dig a bit, a little bit below the surface. Well, tell me about your belief in God. Well, I'm a really spiritual person. I go out into nature and, you know, I, I pray to the powers of the universe and they start, and, and none of it's in Scripture, right? And they have this idea, oh, I believe. I believe in God. I'm a believer. I'm a spiritual person. And you talk about, well, tell me about God. Well... I just believe in God. But I want to remind you, Satan believed in God. The demons believed in God. In fact, in James 2.19, it says, even the demons believed and shuddered. Do you think there's demons in heaven? I don't think so. You think Satan is in heaven? I don't think so. Satan and the demons, they believe in God. They believed in God, and then they rebelled. That's why I call it false faith. I mean, there's all sorts of people today who say, oh, I believe in God. 
I just don't want to obey God. I just don't want to do what God tells me to do, what God tells us to do for our own good. That's why I call it a false faith. And you probably can think about people. Maybe you're here today. You're thinking, oh, I believe in God. Oh, boy, I better think more about that. Then there's what I would call a a firm faith. I would say this is like a a saving faith where you actually believe in in drinking. You've received the grace of Jesus Christ in your life. You've you've taken a sip of that water and you're like, ah, it's good. That's good. That's a saving faith, right? That's also a belief. But the image that kind of comes to my mind as I think about a, a, a firm faith is more like a lake, or, uh, you know, a place where water gathers together. The water comes in, and we're satisfied, we're filled, and it feels good. And that's the kind of faith that it's just all about me. Me and Jesus, me and God. Ah, so good. But I think that kind of faith, while it is a firm faith, while it is a salvific faith, It's not the kind of faith that Jesus is talking about here. Jesus says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is what I would call a flowing faith. And for me, the imagery is not a lake or a reservoir. It's more like a river. We are more like a a conduit of God's grace and love in our lives. Water comes in from God and then out to others around us in the community and in the world. We're vessels. Water comes in, this refreshment from God, and then we give it away to others around us. This, I think, is the most fulfilling uh, kind of faith that we can have. Because it goes somewhere, it leads somewhere, it invites us to live in God's purpose for others around us. And this, frankly, is why our mission statement here at Faith Lutheran Church is growing disciples who grow disciples. See, many congregations, or frankly, many people think that to be a follower of Jesus is just about being a growing disciple. And that's good. That's part of it. That's half the equation, right? Came to church on Sunday morning. I read my Bible, I pray, I put some money in the offering plate, I serve in the community, I'm doing, I'm doing all these things and they feel so good, I'm, I'm growing as a disciple of Jesus. That's awesome. But I would put that under the category of a reservoir, of someone who's just receiving, we, we receive what God has given to us and it feels good, Right? But I got to tell you, I have met so many Christians who go, who've been Christians for years and years and years, even decades, who've grown weary in their faith. It's like, oh, I'm just, I'm kind of going through a dry season. I'm kind of worn out. I'm kind of burned out on the whole church thing or the whole Jesus thing, frankly. And I think one of the reasons why people get burned out on church and following Jesus is because we've made all this all about ourselves, all about receiving God's grace in our life. In fact, a number of years ago, um, about 10 years ago, uh, Willow Creek, that mega church up in Chicago, they found lots and lots of folks in the congregation, even leaders in the congregation. They were getting really involved in the life of the church. They were serving on church council, doing all these things. And then all of a sudden, they hit this, this ceiling. And what Bill Hybels and the other leadership noticed is what many people in the church, even long-term, uh, very committed people in the church, they just got to this point where like, ah, 
kind of done. I'm, I, I don't know what else to do. I've kind of hit the pinnacle of being a Jesus follower. And what they discovered is they had made church, they had made faith in Jesus Christ all about them, all the ways in which God, they were receiving it from God, but they were not carrying it out into the world. And this is why I think it's so important for that we are not just growing disciples in our own discipleship, in our own relationship with Jesus Christ, but we are actively growing others who grow disciples. Because if you are discipling someone else, if you are allowing the water of God to filter through you, to come through you, to pour out into other people who, don't, who do not know Jesus, who are less mature in their spiritual walk, you cannot grow weary. You cannot get worn out because you're going to have such a passion to help them want to grow. It is the most satisfying form of discipleship. So when we give away to others, when we pour into others, it's faith in Jesus Christ. This past week, uh, I was part of uh, one of my life groups, and uh, we had a good time uh, talking about stuff, talked about the Bible, talked about our families, talked about what's going on, and pretty soon, you know, we're kind of breaking up, and everybody left, and I'm standing there with one of the other guys in the group, and I said, so what do you got going on this week? said, well, actually, today I'm going to talk to my son about Jesus. And I'm like, really? He said, yeah, my son um, grew up in the church, you know, Sunday school, confirmation, you know, all that stuff. But uh, he doesn't, doesn't go to church, doesn't follow Jesus. He said, but what I'm going to do this afternoon is I'm going to sit down with him and share again who Jesus is in my life. I thought, there it is. He's not weary, he's not worn out of telling the story of Jesus because he knows someone who is not following Jesus and his heart is so burdened that he just, he's, he's like, I, I gotta tell my son. I gotta tell my son about Jesus. I thought, that's what it means to make disciples. To be a disciple who make and grow other disciples that we never grow weary of pouring in to other people. So my question this morning for us all is how are you growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ? How are you receiving the living water of Jesus Christ in your life? Being refreshed, being renewed, walking with him, listening to him, and sharing with him. And then how are you pouring out your life into others? How are you discipling others? And if you got kids, you know who you should be discipling, right? They live in your house. Or maybe you've got grandkids. Maybe you've got neighbors. You all know someone who doesn't know Jesus. And if you only hang out with Jesus people, you need to get out more. Because there's a lot of people in this community, in this world, who don't know Jesus. And that's what it means to make disciples of other people. And how are you doing in growing disciples of, other, uh, of Jesus Christ and other people? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God who comes to us, us uh, as, as a waterfall, as an artesian well. This living water, God. And so often, as we sang about earlier, we, we are just prone to wander, prone to walk away from you, just ah, distracted 
by all the stuff of the world. God, you just keep coming to us and inviting us to come back to you, to drink from the well, to be refreshed, to be renewed. So Lord, may that just be us this morning, disciples, soaking in what you have offered to us freely, what we can't give ourselves. God, I also want to pray for us this morning as we're thinking about those who don't know you, those who have walked away from you, those who are far from you. Lord, give us a burden. Give us a passion. Give us a conviction to seek those people out, to build a relationship with them, and to share you with them. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.